You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Um, and that's sort of what I hope um, this book is. Um, well, 
So what I wanted to do tonight was to just tell a couple of stories from the book um, and then talk about them. Uh, I asked my publisher, I was like, what do you want me to do with these readings? They were like, read from the book, and I was like, I don't know I 
was too shy to try most of the fun hairstyles. And I felt like when it was cut normally, it just didn't have any of the burr, sheen, or glow of other people's styles. I now realize it's because I wasn't putting any product in it, uh, but I was putting things like burr, sheen, or glow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's safe, right? I'm talking about the gel, like, how is that supposed to know? <laughs> most of the time, I don't think about my hair, which in and of itself is a, like a derelict of duty as a black person. I initially wrote the word heroin of duty, and my other word was like, absolute duty. Hair is integral to cultural life. It's how we do our hair, what products are available to us, whether we let white people touch it, we don't. And the messaging we receive from non black people about our hair is all part of the experience. I know this, I'm sometimes affected by it, but I find it hard to internalize. I'm proud to be black, uh, but I've never been able to harness pride about my hair, but just to really connect with it, or the lack thereof. Baldness is a legitimate hair black hair choice, too. Why don't I just make take dicks my hair model and keep it moving? Do I like it? Is? No, but has the theory of reality ever stopped me before? <laughs> One year for Halloween, I noticed Kanye West. Uh, sort of. I wore sunglasses and a sports coat because I'm lazy. Somebody asked me if I was Lex Luthor. <laughs> this was hilarious to me because this verse was obviously costume colorblind and very woke. But it's not being ridiculous about it. You see my bald ass walking down the street on Halloween wearing a suit. You don't think, hey, that's Lex Luthor. <laughs> I can tell from the context, context clues. You also don't think, hey, that's Kanye West. Or like me, you think, that guy is dressed as Kareem Abdul Jabbar. <laughs> Or more likely, why is that bald man going to a job interview at 8 p.m. on Friday? And why does the suit have shorts? The suit has shorts because I'm dressed up as sexy Kareem Abdul. Also known as Lex Luthor Vandross. Um, I, uh, on Monday, I write in that chapter also about uh, experiences of black art. Very interesting uh, spaces, like I said, should sit in this chair. Um, uh, are very, uh, like, interesting spaces where, like, blackness and masculinity and machine all sort of, like, come together in ways that are sometimes, like, uh, um, troubling for me, and sometimes fine, you know, there are spaces of community where they can also be, and, like, any space, you know, like any community, they can also be spaces where you're like, oh, maybe I don't belong here. Uh, on Monday, I went to go get uh, my beer tree that I, um, uh, a barbershop. Usually I turn myself, but I was like, I'm going to be in public. <laughs> so I go in, um, and it's a fine experience. There's a couple barbers in there, and uh, I trim my beard, I pay them, um, and I, like, I'm like, that was a successful barbershop experience. And then behind me, two barbers are sort of like joshing with each other. And so I get out of the chair, and uh, I, like, as I'm headed toward the door, I'm like, ah, I made it out. Um, this is about, uh, I went to college in Columbia for a little bit, and 
uh, portions of the early chapters of the book are about that. Um, and uh, I worked in the student affairs office, and so I'm going to read just uh, just a couple paragraphs about that. Um, the office had two deans with whom I was obsessed: a man named Ron and a woman named Tanya. Uh, I only had a handful of black teachers or administrators in my life, and I remember them all with a truly terrifying level of detail. I would encounter a black person in a position of intellectual or cultural authority, and I would perform a full body scan like, a, like I was a 3D printer or a TSA agent. <laughs> all of the slapped on. I wanted to memorize these people. Uh, Kenya moved through the world with a level of authority and command that laid me all the way out. She would stride into the office, give me a pleasant greeting, and then move on to whatever was pressing, and I would actually get lightheaded like a teenager seeing the Beatles. <laughs> Teddy was also the first person I ever encountered who carried hot sauce in her purse. See, I told you there was a I have an agenda. She was full-time black. Uh, once uh, she was headed off to some fancy club in dinner with, I don't know, Yo-Yo Ma or Maya or I don't know, and she stopped in the doorway of her office to ensure that her little bottle of Franks was in her bag. I literally said aloud, that is the blackest thing I have ever seen in my entire life. I was off. Jenny was definitely someone who wouldn't even think of allowing hateration in a dancery. <laughs> they just let me print whatever I want. They were like, sure, paper's cheap. Jenny was erudite, kind, intelligent, and clearly making paper, and also black as hell, and I was shook. Ron's presence was an equally stunning force in my life, though he worked with students more closely and had a more casual relationship with us. Teddy was like Mount Rushmore, and Ron was like a park ranger who leads a guided tour. <laughs> he had a level of accessibility and a beguiling version of masculinity that was completely foreign to me. Little details about him, his sense of humor, his aesthetic, his excellent ability to roll his eyes, his very moisturized skin, glittered and glinted like white in sequence. Ron looked so safe. The importance and the rarity of that in a time when I felt constantly at risk in my racial understanding of myself and in my acceptance of my sexual orientation can't be overstated. I was obsessed with the two of them, with their takes on blackness. I, I wanted to include um, that little bit about Ron and Kenya. Uh, one, because I think it's so, I think back on every teacher I, I ever had and every school administrator was deeply important to me. Um, even the ones who were mean to me. Um, but uh, the black ones, I think about all the time still. Um, and uh, I think about, um, and I think about the queer teachers I had, um, the ones who were sort of new or queer, the ones who were sort of intuitive who were queer, and how important that was. Um, I read an article uh, that uh, I'm going to sort of butcher, but I, uh, it basically said that um, when uh, like a, a queer student has a queer questioning student has uh, one adult who is kind to them um, and uh, shows them a level of acceptance um, un you know, unconditionally. It reduces their uh, chances of uh, trying to take their own life. Um, and uh, I think about that a lot. Uh, I think about the people who have shown up and uh, stood in the path of um, what's the crazy Tracy Hughes talk about uh, terror and miracles and stood in between uh, me and terror. Um, and that's hugely, hugely important. Um, and so I wanted to, as I walked talk through the book, walk through the book, the stories in the book, I wanted to um, point out the people along the way um, who uh, stood between um, me and a different path. I think that one of the things that's so interesting about um, thinking about our stories, thinking about our lives, is that you get to look back and see all the places where things could have gone differently. Um, and um, that can be terrifying, and that can also be really, really encouraging. I um, and when you look back and you see also like all the people that um, were deeply uh, important um, uh, in small ways and in large ways, people that sort of didn't necessarily make a grand gesture but um, were kind, <laughs> you know, uh, remembered your name, um, uh, asked you, um, <laughs> uh, and this isn't in the book, I don't talk about this phase of my life, but there was a, a I, I, I don't go to uh, my old church anymore, but one of the um, people at my old church uh, came up to me and we went to, um, go to a funeral there, and she came up to me and she asked, she was like, how are you and how is your husband? Um, and I just can't speak to how deeply meaningful 
Um, those sort of things are. Um, I wrote, I have an article on the Oprah Magazine uh, uh, today online. Um, just dropped the name. <laughs> Six pages. Um, so your kids. 
out of myself. So I'm not going to read uh, anything from the essay that's too dramatic. I'm going to read um, uh, just a little bit about libraries. Parker School Library, like many libraries, uses the Dewey Decimal System for categorizing and filing books. As a lifelong library goer, I'd always been captivated by the numbers on the spine of every book. I love that every possible thing, every story, every fact, everything in the universe of knowledge should be classified. I love that by understanding the Dewey Decimal System, even at a rudimentary level, I gain access to an ever-deepening world of information. Knowing what the ten divisions in the system were and what many of the divisions subcategories were made, uh, made what was very often, I thought I'd found a typo, and I was almost had a little Give them all back. Made what was often overwhelming and mysterious suddenly comprehensible. A library looks like endless possibilities in this way, rather than a row of closed covers. A library is a universe, a smaller universe is contained within pages. And to me, the Dewey Decimal System was the key. One of the things I liked about the Dewey Decimal System was uh, that it could uh, function as a secret code. Every once in a while, in my high school years, I would hesitantly and cautiously type gay into a search bar in a card catalog. Just gay, as if more specificity would kill me right on the spot. Libraries were the only space I felt remotely comfortable in acknowledging a question, which didn't even have the words or language, just the faint outline of the punctuation. And we're not, uh, and where, not a library, but I go to understand the unknown, to expand my world, to make sense out of gibberish. Uh, I would type gay, and then I would survey the titles that came up, and then click on the and click the window close without ever doing any further exploring. I didn't know what I thought I might find if I actually went to the aisle where the books were, a very quiet gay bar, perhaps. <laughs> I figured it wasn't worth the risk. But as I closed the screen, I memorized the Dewey Decimal System of the section where I presumed a mere ball sprinkled stardust across the aging carpet in the rows of books waiting to be opened. Years later, I would learn about the work of Dorothy Porter, the Howard University librarian who devised her own classification system for library materials. In the 1930s, she began building a collection of books by black writers in volumes on black and African history that would eventually become Howard's Moreland Spring Arm Research Center. At its inception, it was an anomaly. In 1995, she told Washington Post, when I started building the collection, nobody was writing about blacks in history. You couldn't find any books. As her collection grew, it became apparent that Dewey reified some of the same structural in inequities that kept black history out of the books and black books off the shelf. In Dewey, she said, they had one number, 326, that meant slavery, and they had another number, 325, that meant uh, colonization. The result, she explained, was that many libraries were reaffirming a Eurocentric mindset by filling and, uh, any and everything about black life under these two categories, colonization and slavery. Porter's wow. system, like Dewey, uh, classified work by genre and subject, but included black authors and black history in every area. When I first learned about the Dewey Decimal System, I assumed it was an impartial way of defining and filing the breadth of knowledge, uh, uh, noble information. I came to understand that the intention of the filer and the perspective that they carry play a huge role in how Dewey and any other system is employed. I, uh, that was a late addition to the book. Uh, and I'm really, really glad that I found that information about Dorothy Porter. Um, because I believe in the possibilities of libraries, obviously, libraries, libraries are astounding. But I also understand that libraries, as anything else, um, are subject to the ways that human beings move throughout the world. Um, and so, you know, our library is different than the library that Dorothy Porter encountered in uh, the, the 30s. Um, and we find stories of all different kinds of lives in every section. Um, but I love that I, it's, again, like you said, you know, terror and, and miracle. Um, you know, there is this space where there is an endless world of possibilities of that is the universe, and you don't see yourself anywhere in that world. And then there is a space that is the current library, that is, that can be all of our world, um, where you see yourself everywhere, and where every book opens itself up to another universe of people that you meet and experiences that you and destinies that you can fulfill. Uh, I wrote a book that uh, I hope is about hope, but also about possibility, um, and about um, our ability to um, not necessarily control the future, but um, to harness the, um, the miracle of it. So uh, with that said, uh, I'm now going to do something very strange. Um, so I, uh, 
I, a friend of mine offered to make me little gifts to give away on my before, and they are themed after one of the stories early in the book. Um, uh, from a essay called um, There's Never Any Trouble for Your um, So uh, when we were little, we only watched MPT, Maryland Public Television, um, and we would watch Lassie every day, and then they took Lassie off of the air. Um, <laughs> and I'm still angry about it. And if you don't remember Maryland Public Television this year, I would like to talk to you. Um, <laughs> now, little six, my parents taught me that when, uh, you know, through your passions and through your words, that you have the power to uh, change the world around you. You know, they were using it to like contact Elijah Cummings about the streetlight being out outside. And I was like, I'm going to write an NBC and get Lassie back on the air. It was a justice issue. And so I wrote to NBC, um, and they never put Lassie, they did not put Lassie back on. But Raymond Hogue, who was the president of uh, NBC at the time, so remember his name, wrote me a very nice letter. And I was like, thanks for writing, kid. Um, here's a little gift um, to. Uh, Make you happy. And it was, like, <laughs> it was a little mug. You know, one of those things that they gave away the pledge drives. And it was that year they were giving away this mug with um, uh, a picture of Nikki and me driving down the road. I still have that mug <laughs> because it tastes like justice. <laughs> and so Melissa made mugs for me. And uh, she, she actually inspired this mug. Um, and uh, she speckled it to um, speak to the confetti on the cover of the book. And it's filled with crackle, which takes, which is something that uh, is from another essay book. So I wanted to have a brief trivia, pop culture trivia game in honor of the work I do during the day. Um, and so I'm going to need two contestants who would like to come up and answer. Okay, Kate, come on up. Come on up. All right, come on up. Come on up. That is 
Korean politics. Uh, career criminal Donald Trump was So, yeah, so I, I, 
I think empathy is a really great way to describe it. That's my intention. I do, I do feel like playwriting. Somebody asked me at an event last night, you know, they asked me the, the question that I think a lot of authors of color get, which is like, if they were, they identified themselves as a, a cisgender straight white man, they're like, well, how do I write the other? How do I experience this beyond my own? And I was like, honey, I write nonfiction. I don't know. Um, but I do know the answer to that question, which is that storytelling and any kind of creation is an exercise in empathy. And so if you're doing this as a, a way of being altruistic toward people who are not like you, you're not going to succeed. Whereas if you're saying, uh, the human in me sees the human in these characters, um, then uh, I think you have a better chance of succeeding. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think with playwriting, uh, I am, I feel so much more freedom with playwriting. One, because you get to manipulate narrative a lot. Like if I had written, I'm currently adapting, I think someone else say this. Well, I, I already started. Um, <laughs> I'm adapting the book into a screenplay. Uh, that does it's a very long road, and who knows, and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, Michael B. Jordan starts with me next year. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, and I found it to be a really difficult process because if I were fictionalized, the first, the first version of the, the Indirect Treaty first, which is just like a narrative of the screenplay, and the first version of it, that I was like, well, you know, the events of my life don't fit into this sort of like dramatic arc. So I inserted like a ghost who was talking to me, um, and all these other fictional characters, like all these exes from uh, what exes? What am I talking about? Um, so like having to construct, uh, being able to construct um, things that have narrative uh, tension is really really helpful in playwriting. So to do that with storytelling, um, you do have to like give yourself a lot of grace and say like, look, uh, I'm the main character and the main character is going to make some choices that nobody likes, um, but it's what happened. And uh, so I had to, I had to, in a lot of these essays, I had to work toward getting to a place where I wasn't, I wasn't writing to punish myself for the things that I did. I was writing from a place of love for the journey, because ultimately I was trying to tell a story. Um, and some of the stories that didn't end up here haven't processed yet. And so I was just like, well, if I can't love whatever happened in that story, despite, you know, there's one story I was going to tell it tonight, but you can just read it in the book. Um, what was it to Little Moth, um, where I talk about um, going viral for an article I wrote at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, um, that a lot of people, it was supposed to be a satire, uh, I thought it was satire um, about Black History Month, uh, but it turned out to be uh, read not as a satire. And so everyone thought that there was a white supremacist on campus, and that his name was uh, R. Thomas. And, uh, and so I got super canceled in 2002. Um, and I went from telling that story as like, oh, this funny wild thing happened. And then from like, the middle of my life, I started telling that story. It's just like, I messed up so badly, and I made so many people hurt. Um, and that was a really hard time to tell that story because it didn't feel good, and I wasn't proud of myself. And then, like, I was like, I'm going to put this in this book, which my mother was like, you're going to put that in the book because when they Google you, they're going to cancel you again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was like, I got to find a way to make it through the other side of the story. And so I saw myself in that moment as somebody who was 21 years old, uh, having like a lot of unresolved things going on, um, and not yet in control of his voice as someone who attempts to write humor. Um, and that character is somebody that I can with. Mm -hmm. So my husband David, um, like he was in an airport, uh, and he saw someone 
and dragging his bag around. And he was like, that's perfect for Eric's book tour. Uh, very fresh. This is before, you know, the vacuum cleaner came out and all this stuff. Um, and so he asked this person, where did you get his bag? And she told him, and he bought it for me for Christmas, maybe for him, Valentine's Day, something. Um, it was wonderful. And it came in very handy. So I love this bag. What else am I here for? Um, I uh, I saw the play uh, Jagged Little Pill on Broadway. Really, really yeah, enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Let us more set um, for the music. It's all, you know all the music that we know and love from um, the '90s, and it was a, uh, a book by Diablo Cody uh, who wrote Juno. Really enjoyed that. What's my favorite? Went to the Manor the other night. Uh, really fantastic new restaurant uh, right up the street in Mount Vernon. Really, really delicious. Like Dutch Courage. Really enjoyed that. Um, uh, what? Yeah, I don't know. It's so funny, like I write, you know, I'm, the capitalism pays my bills, and like, I don't, I'm like, I'm fine with paying, I don't know, whatever, who cares. Um, so yeah, I think those are, yeah, those are, oh, and if you're looking for another book besides Here for to Read, um, I highly recommend the book Real Life by Brandon Taylor, um, which is a really phenomenal book, uh, he and I are friends, um, and it's phenomenal, it came out on Tuesday as well, we're book twins, uh, and it's a phenomenal novel about um, a, a black man. Um, uh, in a mostly white college environment in the Midwest. Chef's kiss, I'm not but it has, a, you know, spiritually, the opposite of mine, uh, you, it feels, oh, to mine it's like, ah! I did write an article about everyday makeup uh, so from, thank you, 
spread. So fancy beauty sent me like all this makeup, and so like, like I tried for the first time uh, lip gloss, and it's delicious. <laughs> I didn't know this. I was just like, I'm not know. Please do that. 
In fact, I haven't heard any of the book coming out. <laughs> sort of this instinct, which is hard, like it's hard for crap questions, uh, like I feel like I never have really satisfactory answers. Like part, I do, I read, I, I really like, I, I Tom Chekhov, the playwright, for whom laughter and tears are sort of in the same space in your throat, in, in, in the line, and so people can go from, uh, you know, telling a funny story to sobbing, or go from sobbing to laughing. Um, and uh, I think that's very true of our own sort of experiences. I've had those experiences. There's one thing I read about in the book where I was going through this terrible, terrible breakup. Um, well, it's just terrible emotionally. It was fine. Like, she was just like, I don't want to be with you. And I was like, oh! <laughs> <laughs> and, I <go laughs> and I go over to my best friend's house, Jake's house, and I, like, I cried at everybody I could think of. Um, and like, I ran down the list of people, I was like, Okay, I just go to Jake. So I go to Jake's house and I'm like sobbing. Um, and then I say to him, I was like, who, who, who's gonna love me? And then I realized I was quoting Precious. It's not even an original sentence. I was quoting Monique in the movie Precious. And so then I start laughing. And so I really cry. I'm still sad, but I'm also laughing. And it's not, and it's tears. And I, would, and I just want to live in that, because that's full vibrancy. So when I'm writing a joke, I, what I am always thinking of is the end. You know how you're always thinking of, like, when you're writing a joke, you think, you know what the punchline's going to be, yeah. you know, hopefully. Um, uh, or you, you model your way to, and then you clean it up on the back end. And so with a, a, a narrative loop that goes from, like, humor to heart, I'm always knowing i got to get us here. Um, and so when I, and so I try and modulate, I, I, like how much humor do I need to get everyone open enough to, um, uh, to receive that, you know? Um, and and look, my editor's really smart. A lot of times, I have like a full page of just like joke, 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 joke. And they're like, you're obfuscating. You're avoiding, you're tap dancing to not tell the truth. And so, there's also a lot of rigor in asking myself, is every joke getting me closer? Is every joke so deeply true? Or am I just making fun of things? Um, so like with the, even with the thing with the, the hair, um, you know, like hair election of duty uh, is a joke that takes us farther away from this idea that like hair is a source of identity, you know? And that can be a source of pain and also pride. Um, so yeah, I kind of look at a paragraph or even just a, a series of lines as um, as both like a map, uh, but also as uh, as this rope. Um, I am always trying to sit in the heart, um, and I think that there's laughter and tears in the heart. Um, and but I always want to stay. Um, and I think the challenge for myself is always to pull myself so close, closer than I want to be. I want to be chuckling on the outside, and sometimes it's you know, and that's why she's got herself universes in there because it's like. There's no way to, to joke my way into this. Um, I'm going to tell you the truth. Um, so probably, yeah, yeah, I don't know a lot about crap, but that's helpful or so interesting. Helpful. Awesome. Before we do a <laughs> you want me to say You want to say it? Either one of us. Okay. We'd love, okay, so I would love, we'd love to do two things. If you will permit to have your picture taken, if you don't want to have your picture taken, that's fine. Every, at every uh, stop, we've been taking pictures of our alone with their hate fans. So I'd love to take one for my social media. If you don't want to be a part of it, just like move to the side. And will not mind. I totally understand. Not all of us have public lives. Um, and then I'm going to get jump in the picture, and then we can all. Um, and uh, um, we all set. Oh, this gorgeous crowd! Oh my God, I love this! All right, one, two, three. Oh god, why is my sound? <laughs> and then I'm gonna get in and Okay, yeah. Can I take a fan? Thank you. Oh look at this fan.
This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.